John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1345.MI0401, certificate number 20568. Tsar Bomba. Tsar Bomba is how you're going to pronounce this. I'm going to say Sarbama. By la, by la, you think the B is silent. Bomb. Uh. Do you say bomb? Do you say, it exploded a bomb. I say Mr. Bombastic. I don't say (laughs) bombastic. (laughs) Bomba. Bomba. By la, by la, Sarbama. No, Sarbama. There's no way the B is silent. It's like Obama. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> except, with the, except he's the czar. Except he's the czar. Remember when everybody was mad because Obama had all those czars? Look at this. He's hiring yeah. a, a pollution czar. This is freaking me out. I know. We were the in, deep state. We were in Toronto during the czar epi, czar's epidemic, and uh, everybody was wearing <laughs> was wearing masks. That's a different kind of czar's yeah. epidemic. I'm going to say czar, czar Obama. You actually, Zarbama. you're not supposed to pronounce the T in Sar. It is silent. Zar. I was trying to say Sar, but that's a thing I do. Like I recently, uh, like on, in the very last entry, I said asthma and I was trying to say it with the TH. Asthma? Even though you're not supposed to say asthma. A- asthma. In the dictionary, it just says asthma. It's the only word in English with a silent TH. The re- future links, the reason we're focusing on this so much is that on our future links page on Facebook, there are quite a few threads about our various pronunciations of certain words, focusing on my... It's 60-40 yeah. the other way. <laughs> focusing on my pronunciations of certain words, including famously the pronunciation of the Soviet Union with an L, which I guess is indicative. It's something that pre-exists in the culture as a sort of um, pointer at people who are illiterate or who don't know how to Is say that true? Things. No, but it's We've just, always been talking about it. It's like nuclear. I hope I never meet one of those guys that says Soviet. I'm really going to let him have it. Yeah, it's like nuclear. nuclear. What is it? Nuclear. But then I borrowed the L from Soviet and accidentally put it in Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, Ku Klux Klan. And I was, ha- and I was people, happy to point that out, but. And so was everyone on the internet. No, but nobody cared. They, they, they just used it as another way to humiliate me. <laughs> anyway, Sarbama, Bamba is um, the largest nuclear weapon ever detonated. 
Nice. And uh, as the name suggests, it was detonated by the Soviet Union. The Tsar. It means it means king of bombs, basically. King of bombs. It's like yeah. saying the king of uh, burgers. No, king of mufflers. What's the? Isn't the there some, yeah. The, isn't, the, there, isn't there some the king slogan? of rock and roll? Famously, the king of rock and roll. Ah, right. Yeah. Michael Jackson. Uh, the king of pop. It, in fact, it has a precedence in um, or a precedent in Russia. Because when something's really big in Russia, they call it the czar whatever. So, for instance, there is a czar bell in Russia, which is the largest bell ever cast. It was commissioned by Catherine the Great to be like the super bell. Do you think people were um, – the super bell? The super bell. Is there a super bell halftime show? King bell. <laughs> It's funny that people were apparently saying it back in the days when there were actual SARS. So it's yep. like it's like a way of sucking up. Yeah, it's the way of like it would be like saying uh, this is the king snake or the king, you know. But it'd be more king current. Tortoise. It would be like in our day saying this is the president Trump. Yeah, right. Tortoise. It's so old and fat. Yeah. The, <laughs> or, or, oh no, that's oh. not what I meant. Did I tell you about the time? Were we talking about this on the show? The time I was in Barcelona and they had the Obama. They had some Obama noodles or whatever. Obama noodles. Some Obama tapas. And I was uh-huh. like, ooh, let's get the Obama tapas. You know what Obama tapas are? What? So much squid ink that they're black. It, oh. tur- it turned out to be a racist tapa oh, name. boo. You thought it was going to be like the, I thought the it was have a, a, young, a, a, fresh tapas. <laughs> I thought it was going to have a reasonable center-left uh, take on modern issues, but nope, see nope. squid ink. Actually, I think I made a mistake. The, the, the Tsar Bell was not commissioned by Empress Catherine, but in fact by... Empress Anna of the former Russian Is that some Empire. some other royal family member? Yeah, but an earlier one. But the Tsar bell was such a big bell that it never rang. Uh, while they were casting it, there was a fire that burned the superstructure and the guards panicked and wanted to try and save the bell from the fire, which wouldn't have... <laughs> Sacrifice yourself, save the bell. <laughs> it wouldn't have really harmed the bell, the fire, but they threw cold water on the bell and it cracked into multiple pieces. The bell survives. Uh, Napoleon tried to steal the bell, but it was so big he couldn't move it. No, why did Napoleon want to steal the bell? Is he like Napoleon. some... Does he some Indiana Jones character who believes it has... Uh, yeah. Uh, mystical powers he to, stole, to, to he save, to destroy Russia. Napoleon stole all kinds of things. From Egypt, yeah. Um, He's it, an archaeologist slash corporal. He likes to take pillars and obelisks home, and this was going to be another trophy. In the present tense, he still does. <laughs> he still does. French parents oh. often tell their children, <laughs> Watch out for Bonaparte. Put, put things away. He's, or he's On gonna, Christmas Eve, if you're bad. He's going to come steal your stocking. <laughs> uh, the bell, the, the big bell weighs 40,000 pounds. And in casting it, they actually added over a thousand pounds of silver and a hundred and sixty pounds of gold to the the mixture of metals. Is that just some show off lifestyles yeah, of the rich and famous seems like kind of maybe, thing? Maybe maybe they were. Or does it, they think it's going to have a clearer tone. I feel like yeah, maybe it was some yeah a combination of the things. Like it's got one hundred and sixty pounds of gold and it. it's going to sound amazing. It does just sound like some bozo getting gold detailing on his Bentley yeah, or, or something. Trump having a gold toilet. Exactly. Uh, but so the bell still exists. It's something you can, it's big enough that at, at one point it was used as a chapel. Uh, <laughs> the One of the big cracks in it was the door and you could go in there and. Perfect. But, but it never, it never rang. There's also a, a czar cannon, which is the largest cannon by caliber ever cast, also in Russia. And it apparently has only, I guess it's been fired once or there's evidence it was fired, although. Did it crack There's also? no uh, record of it. 
being fired, which seems weird. If you were going to fire the Tsar cannon, I would think you would, you would have taken a picture or written it down. Oh, actually, I guess it was, I guess the Tsar cannon dates all the way back to the 1500s. You'd think so. someone would have heard it unless yeah. they put the Tsar silencer on it. But they definitely could have written it down. <laughs> anyway, this is a, a habit in Russia to name the biggest thing a czar. Like if they go to the fair and they win a prize, do they, are they like, I got the czar Toblerone. Yeah, the czar bear. And it's just a big Toblerone with a bunch of little Toblerones in it, like surf Toblerones. I wonder whatever. if every neighborhood, like the biggest guy in the neighborhood is called the czar. Well, it's funny. They kept it up during the Soviet era when, mm -hmm. you know, the czar was in disrepute. The whole point of, of being the USSR is to have one fewer czar. Well, right. you know, whenever you're in like YMCA camp as a kid, like the bus is always called Big Bertha, right? Or I mean, we <laughs> use Bertha to describe anything big, don't we still? Or they're, was that probably, just in the 1970s? There probably used to be beautiful beauty queens named Bertha, you know, and uh, beach princesses named Bertha. And then just one, what is it, an anti-aircraft gun or something? All it takes is one piece of artillery named Bertha. Big Bertha. And now it's just like a way to just make fun of people. All right. Well, way to describe the, the bus or the, I mean, it's like Sarbama. Big Bertha is a way to, to say like, that's the biggest I would say since, you know. since 1989, we have uh, the mother of all blank for that. Oh, the mother of all blank. Because of Saddam. It's almost like it's it's the same thing. It's it's one of our enemy countries. Right. And he says uh, some show off thing about how big their artillery or whatever is. The mother of all The cannons. mother of all wars. Yeah. And so that becomes what journalists call a snow clone. Do you know the word snow clone? Hmm. What is it? It's just a journalistic cliche for anything where you can plug in oh, the topic of your thing and, so and get a headline. So Watergate became the ultimate yeah, snow clone. Snow clone is, yeah, Watergate's a perfect example. Or just saying X is the new Y. Right. Or, um, I don't know, what's some other example? It comes from the, the trope about which we've actually talked about in the Omnibus before, about Eskimos having 50 words for snow. Mm -hmm. We talked about that a lot, actually. <laughs> Very recently. <laughs> but it would be like, you know, Volvos have 50 words for boring, or, you know, it would be something like that. Volvos? Or, I don't know, you know, or... Uh, Is that your imaginary peoples? The Volvos <laughs> who live in Volvonia? I would say you can pluralize any car, true, John. True, true, true. You, you don't say, I drive six Bentley <laughs> The people of Camry Island. They're not like an animal you hunt, like deer or pheasant, where it would be singular. Right, gazelles. I'm gonna I'm gonna hunt some <laughs> I'm gonna hunt some Chevrolet. I totally use totally was wasn't listening to you there. But that's that's <laughs> that's not new on this program either. Uh, so a lot of our listeners, so you could be twenty six years old and have never lived during a time when there was a nuclear explosion. And yet they're pronouncing Soviet writing. You're not. They are. Makes they, you think. They know a lot and I know a little. But the last U.S. Years. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that. Uh, they have lived 26 years since the last American nuclear test. There have been plenty in Pakistan and in India, most recently in North Korea. I'm doing the math. 1994-ish? 1992. 1992. Oh, was, right. My was math the is last, not great. <laughs> was, was the last American underground uh, nuclear test, which was after the fall of the Soviet Union, Soviet Union, we were still, we were still testing bombs to make sure that we maintained a deterrent. I think I know what you're talking about. The biggest bomb I remember from 1992 is uh, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, starring oh. Sylvester Stallone. Oh boy, I would ring the bell, but I can't reach it from here. Was that, was that <laughs> you're getting increasingly lazy. 
<laughs> is that is that we were talking about? Is that the last the last American bomb from 1992? Uh, was it no, that I think the last American bomb from 1992 was the Stone Temple Pilots record. <laughs> the, the second Stone Temple Pilots record. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, so from the beginning of the nuclear era, which we would say began with the Trinity test of the first American, you know, the first explosion, early 40s, middle yeah. of World War II. Uh, after the Soviets developed the technology, to, after they exploded their first bomb, it began a rash. And they, it began a rash on people who were near the sites. Who were near the explosions, right. The Soviets needed to catch up. They did. They and were desperate. To, so they were testing bombs. We needed to explain to them how many bombs we had and how good our bombs were. And it began, well, I mean, we think of the arms race and the Cold War as being many decades long and involving a whole different, you know, a, a vast and complex system of different weapons and, uh, and systems. But, which, which we've discussed on the Mutual Assured Destruction entry. Right. But in the very early days, it was really focused on testing these bombs, uh, testing them in, in both privately and visibly as the initial form of deterrent. And these tests were happening really before we even had delivery systems to actually get the bombs to where the, we, we were strapping these bombs into DC-3s, you know. Uh, there wasn't a way to get them over the pole initially, but we were blowing up bombs right and left. Weren't we just like setting them down, set a bomb in the middle of the desert and yeah, walk away? build it on a tower or um, put it under the ocean. And, it, I, and I guess that does serve some practical purpose. You got to know if it works. Right. But also... And you, also you want your enemy to know that it works. And you're experimenting with great, I mean, the, the physicists that were working on these programs were also, I mean, initially very excited about just the pure physics of how to create greater explosive capacity in these bombs. And there were fission bombs, there were fusion bombs, there were combinations of the two. Um, over the course of the sort of testing era over, there were over 520 atmospheric tests, which it, by which I mean above ground tests of nuclear explosive devices, including ones in the atmosphere, or I'm sorry, in the stratosphere, like above the, the atmosphere in space. America doing that? America doing it uh, as part of an early version of how we would, how we would defend against ICBMs uh, by sending uh, we didn't have the technology to specifically target individual uh, rockets with like what, what Star Wars ended up becoming was a system where we would target a rocket with a high velocity impact missile. Try to shoot it down in motion. Right. We couldn't do that. We didn't have the technology impossible. then, but you could send up a two kiloton rocket that exploded its own nuclear explosion and that would capture the other, you know, your enemy rocket in in its explosion. And, and, uh, so we were shooting rockets all the way up into space. And is this more or less problematic, like fallout wise to shoot it higher up? I mean, is that safer? No, I mean, safer in a different way, the fallout. Um, so the, the last one of these that we did was part of an operation called operation fishbowl. And the last, the last rocket, uh, was a rocket called Starfish Prime, which went up, which exploded at an altitude of 250 miles in space. Wow. And um, it created a band of of nuclear fallout, a band, you know, like a that that band encompassed the Earth, oh. and knocked out six different 
satellites. Uh, it, it created its own aurora so that you, you know, you had a sort of northern lights as a result of this bomb. Well, that's a nice silver lining. It was really, it was really beautiful for a few days. It knocked out the Telstar satellite, which was the first communication satellite. Uh, it was launched only a couple of days after Project Starfish or Starfish Prime. And it went up, it did some amazing things. It, it, um, it was the first, uh, it transmitted the first uh, global television uh, broadcast. It transmitted the first like telephone call via satellite. It did, you know, the first fax. The first sext. It did uh, <laughs> it did all of this in its very short life. And then this radiation cloud damaged it until it was unusable. It was fried permanently. Fried, This yeah. is not the kind of thing where you can just upload some new firmware. It's still in space, actually, orbiting sure. uh, dead. So, so throughout the 50s, this was, you know, a, a major feature of, I guess, political and cultural life. The, uh, the Cold War was sort of really ramping up, and these tests were... Seemed like there was a lot on the line. There was a lot on the line, and as part of the arms race, there was an attempt to build bigger and bigger bombs, because... Because they had small penises, a lot of these men. They had small penises, but also they were, you know, the deterrent capacity of a tactical nuclear weapon, one that you would shoot at some local troops and kill 10,000 guys isn't quite the same as one that could destroy all of Moscow and everything around it. And at the time, the big difference between an effective nuclear weapon and an ineffective one would just be a matter of size. It's just the number of kilotons. Right. Like what's, what's the size of the radius you can blow up with it? Uh, and that got bigger very fast. I mean, the first, the technology advanced very quickly, right? It the did. first hydrogen bomb is 1952. That's just seven years after, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. And it, an uh, increase in power from bombs that were measured in kilotons to bombs that were measured in megatons. Yeah, it got, it got, the scale got hundreds and thousands of times bigger very quickly. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout by 1954 the science had developed a concept of a multi-stage nuclear explosion, which is to say there was a small bomb, a kiloton bomb, kiloton uh, yield bomb. A fat man, little boy sized bomb. That then compressed visible material into a secondary explosion. So the trigger of the second bomb was also a nuclear bomb. And then the second bomb would then trigger a third stage of explosions so that there was a bomb that ignited a bomb 
that then ignited a subsequent bomb. Were the Russians inspired by their um, famous dolls? Uh, the, their famous dolls, or, or actually it was just... In fact, what, did it look like one of those dolls? Was there a little <laughs> tiny bomb in the middle, and then... Pretty much. It was, uh, it was described by Sakharov, as a, who was one of the physicists mm -hmm. working on the Russian program, as a layer cake. He called them layer cake bombs. Although nesting doll bombs would have been a sure. more appropriate. Like, why would you call it a, the Tsar bomb without using another, like... Russian icon. Maybe in Russia, a layer cake is an insanely patriotic. Right. Icon. The czar layer cake. Like we have apple pie and they have a Russian layer cake. Now the largest explosion ever achieved by the United States was a test called Castle Bravo, which happened in 1954. And it was actually a mistake. <laughs> the, the, the bomb was expected to generate about a five megaton explosion. But what the scientists who were designing the bomb had failed to appreciate was a lot of the material in the bomb that they considered inert actually at these enormous they, temperatures became visible. So they had, they had uh, lithium-6 was an isotope that they expected to be explosive in the context of this bomb. But lithium-7 was considered inert. And they're like, luckily, a huge percentage of this is lithium-7. Right. So the lithium-7 is just going to absorb some neutrons. It's going to turn into lithium-8. It's not going to be a problem. But in fact, lithium-7 uh, generated an explosion. You know, it actually absorbed neutrons and split in a way that produced more visible material. And the bomb, which was expected to be uh, 5 megatons, ended up being a 15 <laughs> megaton bomb. It's like when you, um, you know, you're going to pass gas in church and you're like, it's okay. This is fine. I can, I can sense it's a quiet one. It feels like it's going to be a quiet one. And then lithium seven, baby. Oh, and then you poop. <laughs> wow. And, yeah. And then you have to leave church. And, uh, and I think in this metaphor, pooping would be like <laughs> if nuclear war begins. Well, it, it was kind of a poop because they expected it would not produce that much fallout. And in fact, the extra explosion and the extra fission produced tremendous fallout. Where are we doing this? And I say we because I'm a 1950s scientist. So this happened at Bikini Atoll. Oh, South Pacific. And it created an explosion that ended up very famously affecting uh, the sailors of a Japanese fishing vessel that was kind of in an area would have been safe for a five megaton explosion, but the 15 megaton explosion irritated them oh. and gave the sailors acute radiation poisoning. Was it treatable or did did it, it kill everyone? Well, it I mean, not treatable, but it, it made them sick. And it was actually, I mean, the, they became sort of poster children. Again, they were Japanese, so it was politically unfortunate uh, that you would irritate Japanese people given our history of irritating Japanese It does people. make it seem like we're not just picking random people. <laughs> like we really have, uh, we're targeting. Yeah, the boat's radio man was the, f died, uh just months later, I guess. So I guess this is kind of what gives you Godzilla movies, right? Yeah, it's right. Not, it's not just the memory of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is just a few years old to have a whole town blown up, a whole city's blown up, but this ongoing idea that the South Pacific is full of radiation creating disasters and monsters. The, uh, the crater of cra the Castle Bravo explosion is still visible there on Bikini Atoll, as many of them are. It was visible from far away. It created all kinds of lasting um, fallout downwind, which wasn't expected. So it was... You know, in the U.S.'s defense, we did 
initially pay off the first casualty twenty eight hundred dollars. Twenty eight hundred dollars in you know in um, in nineteen fifty four dollars. A later compensation settlement was later negotiated to the tune of fifteen million dollars. Oh. But still, well, because the fallout affected a lot of inhabited islands that it wasn't expected to, and actually went around the world. It was supposed to be a secret test at first, but because it so vastly exceeded its explosive power, it became an international incident. And uh, there was a lot of outcry. It really does seem like you shouldn't be testing things that, you know, might just kill or give hepatitis C to thousands of people. Well, and this was another concern, I think, uh, sort of globally, was the idea that one of these tests could ignite an unexpected chain reaction somehow. Right, that, that was, would, they talked about that as early as the Manhattan Project, like, like what if? Yeah, what, what do we do if this just uh, it has some unforeseen set of increasing... Um, and we just burn up the whole atmosphere. Yeah, we, we explode the world. And a few of these where yields were sort of misanticipated uh, gave credence to, the, to this idea, right? That, um, well, that there was some kind of supernatural potential. Well, it doesn't seem crazy if you're just going to keep blowing up bigger and bigger things. At one point, one of these is going to go wrong. It's going to spark retaliation. It just seems like you're playing with fire quite literally. You are playing with fire. And we don't like to use the term literally that loosely, but this is an example of literal playing with fire. That's why I, I, I use that advisedly. Because here's what's mm. literal about it to me. Mm. They're playing around. Yes, they are. They and the explosions be. are fiery. They are fiery. So in a sense, they're playing with fire. Literally. Literally. Well, fast forward several years and the <laughs> Russians, <laughs> the Russians are... You know, they have great physicists there and they are perfecting. We think now. Oh, they do, comrade? Yeah, they do. Do you do. think their physicists are really good? Actually, Maybe better than ours? Actually, if we had voted for Bernie, then none of this would be <laughs> happening right now. Uh, we think now, looking back at the arms race, that it turns out the USSR did not have the same technology that the United States did. It was not actually a arms race. The Americans had. A, exponentially better equipped military than the Russians did. They, it was not a, a, a one-to-one parody. But there's some equalizing effect with atomic weapons, what right? What they Where had If was, they have a few good ones, then that's still a goodbye to the Eastern Seaboard. Right. They had great bombs. What they didn't have was great missiles or great airplanes. They couldn't reliably deliver them. We, were, we had perfected the missile delivery systems in ways that made our weapons really a threat. And they sort of had great bombs, but not, not great rockets. We but, had legs and we knew how to use them. That's right. They just had legs. Didn't know how to use them. Didn't know how to use them. And to demonstrate their superior bombs, in 1961, they detonated the largest bomb in history, SAR bomb, which they intentionally tamped to a 50 megaton load. Can you uh, help me with the math here? Like how many Hiroshima's or? So a 50 megaton explosion is equivalent to 10 times the combined energy of all the explosives used in World War II. Oh. Um, it is. People always say that, like I'm supposed to have in my head this idea of combining every World War II explosion. I can't do that. But if you think about all the cities of Europe being destroyed by 
That's true. For years. By all of the carpet bombing that happened, plus all of the explosives used in all of the Pacific theater combined into one device. It was about 1500 times bigger than the Hiroshima bomb. Wow. It, it forms, this one bomb forms like a measurable proportion of all the nuclear weapons ever exploded. And the design was such that it actually had the capacity to deliver twice as much energy, 100 megatons. And why, so why was it tamped? Because at 100 megatons, it would have created so much fallout that it would have like contaminated a big portion of Russia and it would have poisoned the atmosphere. It also would have made it impossible for the pilots of the airplane to escape the fireball. Oh, so this is something they're dropping from a plane. Well, so the bomb was so big, they couldn't put it on a missile. <laughs> um, and they actually had to specially modify a bomber by taking away its extra fuel tanks and its bomb bay doors. Yeah, like, it couldn't fit in the bay. It right? couldn't fit in, the, to, in the airplane. And this was what made it a very impractical weapon. Like you couldn't actually get this bomb to the United States, but they could demonstrate its power. And it was absolutely... It doesn't appear to have been a strategy during the Cold War, but you could put this bomb on a boat and go sail up the Hudson River. I mean, there was certainly transatlantic boat activity where Eastern European countries were shipping things to America. It's possible to have gotten the bomb there. I feel like I've read that that was the, uh, you know, the doomsday device from... Dr. Strangelove is, is based on an idea that Khrushchev actually had where you could just put enough big bombs on boats out in the ocean that if anything happened, we, he would just say, hey, these are our boats. We're going to blow right, them up. Right. You know? One and, up the Columbia River and one uh, off of the coast of LA. And as long as you know the boats are out there, that's a deterrent. And right. I think he was talked out of that, but in favor of these kind of big aerial bombs like this one. This one was uh, was exploded very high up in the air. It was imagined that it would, that the fireball would make contact with the ground, but it was such a large explosion that the shock wave of the explosion actually bounced off the earth and came back and kept its own fireball from ever touching the ground. Wow. It destroyed everything around it. It sent a shock wave uh, that broke windows in Scandinavia. Where is this? Uh, where is the site? So this happened on a on an island in Russia, very far north. An island uh, so far north that a lot a large portion of it is covered with glaciers. It's called Severny Island, which it turns out is uh, the 30th largest island in the world, but it's in the Arctic. It's yeah, it's in uh, Novaya Zemlya. If you ever looked at a map of Siberia, you might be able to picture this kind of this uh, island archipelago kind of pointing up north towards the North Pole. Yeah, it's like a long archipelago and, and, and Severny Island is just a portion of it, but it's an enormous island. We, we could test weapons in the South Pacific because of America's sort of hegemony over that area. But uh, the Russians... They had no oceans to... Yeah, right. This is the big problem with Russia, right? You're, you're ice-locked oceanically unless you're all the way over on the Pacific coast. A lot of their bombs were tested in the deserts of Kazakhstan, but a bomb like this, they needed a even larger uninhabited area and they were testing these up in the Arctic. 
Kazakhstan is empty and uh, full of a, a racial minority that the Russians didn't much care about. So That's it's, right. It's two birds with one stone. That's right. But they couldn't they, they couldn't test a bomb like this there, just as we could not have tested a, a bomb that large. Hydrogen in bombs on yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, smaller bombs, sure, but but this bomb, although it it achieved fifty megatons, it was an example or a threat of a much larger bomb and, that. And did they put the word out? Hey, by the way, this could have been twice as big. They did. And I think the physicists that were monitoring explosions of this kind recognized what that recognized that there was, this was a multi-layer bomb that had the potential to be so much larger, so much more destructive. And, and, it, and it could have killed the pilot, right? The, uh, so the, the pilot of the airplane, the, the pilot and crew of the delivery airplane. The, and, and a second plane with a camera crew. And a second plane with a camera crew. We're only given a 50% chance of escaping the, the blast. And when the I shock... Like, I like to have a bigger odds than that when I get onto a plane. Right. Well, the thing is, all these guys are daredevils. So they're thinking, sure, 50%, I'll take those odds. I guess every time I fly United, I'm kind of thinking, eh, <laughs> 50%. If you get on one of those inter-island air, air, airlines <laughs> between Hawaiian islands or out in Alaska, I got on an airplane one time that was like a you know, a smaller plane flying down to, to Homer or something. And you could see air out the door. The door didn't, <laughs> the door quite didn't close. quite close. And you could see like daylight coming in through the door. You just got to jiggle the latch. It was a loud flight too. So these guys had 50% odds. Huh? And when the blast, when the shockwave actually hit the aircraft, the, the plane dropped a full kilometer in the air because the, <laughs> you imagine? the shockwave was just like, boom, and you... And that's when they filmed Apollo 13. <laughs> I imagine their stomachs were up in their throats. Well, their vodka flying out of bottles. Yeah, right. Their chocolate and their nylons. I guess they put, sorry, bomb, but they put the bomb on a parachute weighing a ton. Just so they could get that plane Just to give them away. time. Yeah. yeah. And it still barely, barely worked. Uh, but the, you know, but the pilots recovered and did survive. The town of Severny was completely demolished, including... Brick buildings, stone buildings, everything. And you said as far away as Scandinavia, windows are breaking? Breaking windows in Scandinavia. The shockwave, the shockwave was measured to have gone around the world three times. Hmm. So they were still feeling sort of uh, like Richter scale registration of this shockwave, like three times around the globe. Uh, and it made an enormous impact. Literally or? Uh, both literally and figuratively, this was happening during a period when there were moratoriums on... Moratoria? Moratoria, thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's my only contribution to the show. I'm pretty much done now. I've, I feel like I've helped. There's, a, there's another one of our fans that used to write us all the time about my... my uh, Your bad plurals? My bad plurals in Latin. And I guess he finally got exhausted. He got mad that we weren't changing the show's name to Omnibi once we had a second one. <laughs> This should have been called Omnibi since episode two, Defenestration. <coughs> so it was kind of in the immediate aftermath of this enormous explosion that the United States and Russia redoubled their efforts to ban atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons. So that's interesting that even at the highest levels of the people okaying these tests, they were still like, but it would be better if like nobody was doing these. Let, why don't we knock this off? And it was in 1963... I mean, there'd been negotiations multiple times and, and like I say, m voluntary moratoria on testing. 
but then that would be violated as tensions increased internationally. The United States or Russia would suddenly start testing again. And these would just be like one-sided pledges, right? These would be like... Well, or they would, you know, they'd negotiate some kind of like, okay, we're, are we done? Are we done? I feel like we're done. And then tensions would heighten and somebody would say, we're not done. <laughs> Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But in 1963, the Partial Test Ban Treaty was adopted that ended uh, above-ground testing. And, and nations were reserved the right to continue underground testing. And like I say, we tested our last bomb in 1992. And was, was Sarbamba part of this? I mean... this No, Sarbamba happened after, or I'm sorry, before this test ban treaty. Right, but it, was it instrumental? I mean, w in the West, were people like, that's a big bomb? Because Khrushchev was using it as, a, I mean, he was a larger-than-life figure in the West at the time, right? Like, in wrestling terms, we had a really good heel, Mm -hmm. Better than this Brezhnev. Is, this, is another, this is another wrestling reference that you're trying like, to sneak in here. I feel here. like you can pretty much understand everything about the 20th century in terms of professional wrestling. Are you going to find a Rocky uh, reference in this too? And then Adrian <laughs> yeah. works at a pet store. So, no, but you know what I mean? Like he was banging his shoe at the UN and, yeah. you know, saying kind of inflammatory things like we will bury you. And I, and I almost think like, uh, like Blofeld in the Bond movies as kind of this bald, doughy, man in a severe uniform seems like maybe he's based on like our idea of an evil guy then is like oh just make him look like khrushchev you know that's kind of an evil you know european eurasian type he psychologically bullied kennedy there are numerous accounts of their first meeting where kennedy kind of waltzed in feeling pretty secure in his position as american president and really got steamrolled by khrushchev who considered him a a neophyte and he's young. He's a pretty, he's a lightweight. He's a lightweight. And, uh, and Khrushchev just pushed him around and Kennedy kind of came out of those meetings like shell shocked. And just like in Rocky four, when, <laughs> <laughs> when I, <I'm drinking. laughs> yeah. So, and, and I mean, there are, there are antecedents of that even in our present day, there's quite a bit of sense that Putin, although representative of a much, less populous and less wealthy and less powerful nation uh, that Putin is kind of getting his way internationally and politically because his sense of the American presidency is that it is a less powerful institution and he can kind of set he, the tone. I've got KGB training and as far as I know, you know, yeah, Donald right. Trump owned a USFL team, but it's <laughs> a little different. And also they're able to, I mean, the cyber wars of the 
present day. That's an equalizer too. Not unlike uh, the ability to make big hydrogen bombs, right? It's, it's an equalizer and it also uh, accords to more what you would call insurrectionist techniques, right? It isn't, it isn't that necessary that you be a superpower. You can kind of create um, little, uh, not ter almost terroristic, sure, te uh, like stratagem. Eight guys with asthma and a, you know, hacking in a bunker in uh, Uzbekistan. Right, can turn the tide of an election, or can I mean the um, the famous incident of uh, the Iranian, what was the uh, program called Stuxnet? Stuxnet that was just a program inserted into the centrifuge program of the Iranian, like uranium centrifuges. They thought, they thought they were installing Minesweeper. Yeah, that's right. They were like, oh, sure, let's update our software. And it caused the centrifuges to spin uncontrollably and, and uh, wrecked them permanently. And in fact, set the set the Iranian nuclear program back a thousand years. But somebody like Putin, I, I feel like Russia was, in, until they had results, they were pretty quiet. There was never a propaganda war. They, you know, Putin wasn't banging a shoe saying, we will hack your phones. Yeah. Um, whereas Khrushchev really was saying things like, we got big ass bombs. Check it out. Uh, he said he was going to show the United States a Kuzma's mother, which is a Russian idiomatic expression that kind of just means up your butt with a rotten coconut. Yeah. yeah. Like your mom. Yeah. Your mom. Mean, <laughs> Kuzma's mother. People were very confused in the West. Nobody knew how to translate. We're going to show you a Kuzma's <laughs> mother, but it appears to be some 19th century idiom related to, you know, they would say something like, uh, We'll tell, we'll let you know Kuzka's mother's name. And it would be something about oh. like, you know, maybe knowing your mom's name is a kind of intimacy that. Sure. It's the ultimate your mama joke. Yeah. So basically Khrushchev is telling your mama jokes at the UN <laughs> about his big, big hydrogen bombs. And a lot of that was bluster, right? Sure. He, That's he, important. Underst he understood that um, the United States was afraid of the sort of indomitable East. And he really played that up just as Stalin had done. And he's kind of a. You know, in Soviet terms, he's kind of this rough, boisterous peasant guy. Yeah. Well, Ke just Kennedy was. Yeah, exactly. Right. Kennedy's this prep school child of privilege. Yeah. And, you know, Khrushchev can run rings around him because he's from the real tough world. And that was what made the Cuban Missile Crisis such a turning point because Kennedy, against all odds, stood up to both the Russians and his own military and prevented what, what became like a, almost an inevitable nuclear conflict. It presages uh, the nerds overtaking the jocks, right? That's right. Choate or whatever, Philip Segular or whatever it is represented by Kennedy, <laughs> beats up Khrushchev's kind of muscular country hayseed persona or whatever. You know, he didn't have the education and he got outsmarted. Right, and Ken but Kennedy also, in addition to outsmarting Khrushchev, also outsmarted his own war wife. cabinet. Wife. Oh. Right. No, he didn't outsmart his wife, unfortunately. She knew. She, she knew. She knew. <laughs> she knew all along. But she was long-suffering. No, he, um, he also defied uh, Curtis LeMay and his National Security Council that all were basically agitating for him to first strike. Push the right? button. So it's one of the reasons that we lionize Kennedy, not just because he was beautiful, but because he actually did because we're all alive. He actually did perform uh, pretty spectacularly during that one week. But the explosion of Sarbama had another after effect, which was one of the preeminent physicists in the Russian program, as I mentioned before, was Andrei Sokharov, 
who was instrumental in the design of the bomb. It's funny because people of our generation think of Sakharov as an anti-nuclear activist. And yet, here he is, Mr. Anti-Nuclear Activist, making the, designing the biggest bomb in history. Some anti-nuke guy. Well, as uh, happened multiple times during this period, uh, in both the American and Russian program, the physicists, when they realized what they had wrought, I mean, Oppenheimer also famously became an anti-nuclear, anti-nuclear uh, advocate. But Sakharov went... Um, went a little further and became a political dissident in Russia who protested in front of the Kremlin. And because he was so famous, uh, he somehow escaped being disappeared. He was censured and uh, ultimately exiled, but he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1975 for his efforts to, to combat proliferation. And probably one of the only voices from the Eastern Bloc doing so. Right. And, and he was, uh, he was really celebrated in the West. There's actually a, the European Union awards a Sakharov prize even now. And at the end of, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, he was elected to the new Congress and was in, you know, kind of like a velvet revolution character who, a, a former dissident uh, who became like a, a politician. Unfortunately, he died almost immediately at the age of 68 as a result of a heart attack. Although... Oh, really? Are we skeptical about the heart attack? Well, at the age of 68, I mean, um, it's... it's he's, been, he's been eating doughy Russian food his whole life. I mean, it's never It's never 100%, 100% clear when someone dies in Russian politics. Yeah, what if, what if uh, Putin's... Uh, you know, rivals and journalist uh, critics uh, all just have very unhealthy habits. Yeah. They, clumsy when they go for walks. They just oops-a-daisy seem to drink a lot of iodine or lick a lot of lead paint off when they were kids. They ate a lot of paint chips. Sometimes you think you're grabbing cough syrup and you're actually grabbing like some thorium or strontium right. isotopes. Right. You trip and accidentally bump into the tip of a poison-tipped umbrella that someone just bought at a thrift store. It's the worst. Um, so... In, in many ways, like the, the ultimate legacy of Sarbama was uh, that it produced one of the great Russian dissidents and one of the great advocates for not just um, peace between the superpowers, but uh, like a global culture of disarmament. And was it a dead end for size? I mean, once you've gone that big, did, if nobody ever tried anything bigger, is it because people realized the Cold War was going to be more about targeting and technique, you know, the motion of the ocean, so to speak. I feel like the North Koreans now are maybe aspiring to create a 50 megaton weapon and partly in response to being belittled, belittled by our size queen in the Oval Office. I think that's dangerous. You know, if there's, if there's anybody I don't want just thinking, oh, we can try a 50 megaton bomb, it's North Korea. Like I wouldn't trust the North Korean regime to make an actual layer cake. Or a nesting doll. Or a nesting doll, much less a 50 megaton atomic layer cake. I think what we haven't seen is the North Korean dissident physicist who becomes an international darling because of his... That's what we need. Yeah, his resistance to uh, nuclear proliferation. But then he peels off his mask and he's one of Tom Cruise's guys. I, I've totally seen this. And that concludes Sarbamba. 
Entry 1345.MI0401, certificate number 20568, in the omnibus. Futurelings, we hope that proliferation treaties in your time have banned all social media, as will surely happen. Uh, I'm sure they're racking up a death toll similar to nuclear arms at this point. But in our era, we were all for it. We were gung-ho. We made sure our project was present on all social media platforms as at Omnibus Project. Individually, we were Ken Jennings on Twitter and John Roderick on tw- John Roderick, three syllables, on Twitter and Instagram. Who, who do you get if you just type John Roderick without the E into Twitter? Have you ever done this? No. Is there a real guy? If I, search, I don't know. Hmm, if I just, if I put it misspelled into Google, it corrects oh, it does. to you. It knows you. Damn right it does. There does not appear to be anybody who owns the John Roderick Twitter handle. Although I'm sure somebody's buying it right now. You better buy it right now before the future gets their hands John on John Roderick? Without the E. There's nobody there. I, I, not that I can find. What about JohnRoderick.com? <laughs> Are you going to buy all these just to cover your bases? I think John Roderick should tweet everything John Roderick does, but without the letter E. Like the book Gatsby. You translate all your tweets into some version of English that does not have the letter E. I cannot imagine how that would help me in my campaign to be known as John Roderick. People would dislike the two-syllable version. Maybe, maybe. Because of his crazy circumlocutions. You know, I and was... Would, and would, it, they'd redouble their, uh, their efforts to pronounce your name correctly. I was given a blue check on Twitter pretty early, not because I was some great tweeter, but because somebody at Twitter liked me and just delivered unto me that verification. That's how I got mine. But... On Instagram, even though I feel like it's pretty clear that I'm a real celebrity there, uh, no blue check is forthcoming. So maybe if I start impersonating myself with John Roderick and confusing people, maybe that will inspire the Instagram people to finally show some respect. Sure, it's like Saddam Hussein with all the lookalikes running around. Right. I'll just be over there doing slightly inferior posts slightly inferior pictures of my food or slightly inferior pictures of me in bed with my German shepherd. You know, at least 15% of my Instagram feed is just people with German shepherds taking blurry pictures of them in the night. Like, Why don't you own a German shepherd then if that's your hobby? That's not my hobby. That's my doppelganger's hobby. I see. That's John Roderick. Roderick. John Roderick abhors everything about that. He does. Uh, speaking of Russian hacking, if you're still on Facebook, you should enjoy the Futurelings group, which is so far 100% Putin bot free. Or if it's full of Putin bots, they're doing a great job at convincing me they're just um, rapidly enthusiastic podcast listeners. Uh, we were contactable via email at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Some people, when they had physical artifacts to send us, uh, everything from postcards to... Uh, I think John wants some kind of zoot suit. Is that right? Not a zoot suit. From no, the 20s? Those are, those are abhor- I, you want a la- I abhor those you want too. a lavender zoot suit from I the don't. 20s? Although I would like a lavender suit. I want it to be a sort of three-button. You want a tailored lavender yeah, suit. Yeah, like a nice lavender suit, not a, a zoot suit. I don't want a high-waisted, multi-pleated. Because nowadays you don't get high or wasted. I don't get high or wasted. You so missed. I don't want you missed your chance. High wasted. <laughs> you just want. Uh, you just want uh, lines that are straight edge. Oh my god. Uh, oh So send John a suit. You could send those to us at the Omnibus Project, PO Box five five seven four four, Charlotte, Washington nine eight one five five. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, 
We have no idea how long before the next wave of super megaton nuclear weapons wiped us off the face of the earth. If North Korea is secretly preparing a 50 megaton weapon... I do not doubt that our current president would fire nuclear weapons at any point if he weren't kept in check by all of these anonymous members of his of his inner circle that are just misplacing the pieces of paper he signs. And he would do that biting lower lip face he does when he um <laughs> when he drives trucks. <laughs> all he, the guy wants to do is push the big red button yeah, while doing he'd do that some face. Fist pumps. Yeah. He would probably nuke Washington DC without fully understanding that he also lives in Washington DC. He's not clear on that point. Unclear if he knows how big these bombs are. Certainly a 50 megaton bomb, which would destroy everything in the uh, beltway and beyond, that, that should be left alone. I don't know if we have one in our stockpile. I doubt we do. You don't think there's a, a, a president uh, bomba? What would we call ours? President bomba. The Eagle uh, Alpha Yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, it would be, we would call it the, um, the Homeland Safety Bomb. <laughs> <laughs> we would call it the... Uh, I liked it better when we were calling our bombs things like Fat Man and Little Boy. Like, basically, it's just like people in the background of a movie. That's what we should have. Lady with glasses. Man reading newspaper. Now it would be called, like, the Liberty Security Eagle um, it also, patriotic bomb. It has to be, like, a very um, implausible acronym. Mm -hmm. So, like, it, sell, it spells eagle, but it's also, like, <laughs> expanding American <laughs> greatness... Uh, <laughs> Laterally. <laughs> <laughs> Exclamation point. There you go. Yeah. Uh, we hope and pray that none of this happens, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be canceled out by an electromagnetic pulse. I hope that does not happen. I hope we end with a stronger episode. <laughs> well, because, because we're deep inside our bunker, perhaps we can escape the EMP. You know, one of the effects of those atmospheric tests, the, the ones mm -hmm. way up in the in space, in low space. The stratosphere. Uh, one of the unexpected consequences was that it sent out a massive EMP that actually knocked out power and phone service in Hawaii. And the EMP was, you know, created big electrical disturbances and it was it was understood then that we needed to knock that off. People in Hawaii are just trying to make a pina colada in their blenders. Yeah, they were calling, all of a sudden, calling the pizza delivery guy and then it's all, it, everything goes. They were all like, we just want pineapple and Canadian bacon. <laughs> on our pizza. Hello? Hello? That's why I drive a, a 1979 GMC truck, because it does not have computers in it that might get fried by an EMP. It's just one more example of my everyday care. That's your that's your bug out bag. It is. Your bug out bag is a truck. It with, is. With, doesn't even have fuses. No, just, no electrical system at all. I'd always be able to start it with a... Even the cabin lights are little gas-powered lamps, like in 1890s <laughs> London. With a, with a lighter and a fish hook, I could get that thing started. <laughs> Uh, if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.